0: We have to remember that the genocide, the military dictatorship which followed, the rule of present-day impunity for gangsters and thugs and the use of them by corporations and by the government, this is the West's vision for Indonesia and for many places like Indonesia.
1: Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast Show. Today, I'm joined by filmmaker Josh Oppenheimer, director most recently of The Act of Killing, a film that's been universally praised uh, and that recently garnered an Oscar nomination. Josh, first, congratulations and thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, tell us a little bit about the film.
0: So, in 1965 in Indonesia, there was a military coup, a right wing military coup, where the military then proceeded to round up everybody who was opposed, potentially opposed, to the new military regime and kill them. And they used civilian death squads to do a lot of the worst of the executions of the killings. And between, within six months or a year, perhaps up to a million, maybe even two million people were killed. And the people who've done it, the army and the paramilitary death squad leaders, have been more or less in power ever since. And when you, meet them instead of denying what they've done or apologizing for it or acting ashamed of it, as perpetrators often do in documentary film. These men boast and they boast openly and seem to be proud of what they've done. Now to understand why they're, the nature of their pride, why they're boasting, the effects of this boasting on their whole society, the kind of regime of fear and impunity that they've built and ruled over ever since, I gave these men the chance to dramatize what they've done in whatever ways they wish, and that process sets in motion a a gradual recognition of the real meaning of what they've done, at least for the main character in the film.
1: What was their understanding of this process? Because it sounds like many different things. It sounds like kind of an amazing opportunity. Someone is coming to you and says, here's a sandbox, here are the tools you need to tell whichever story you choose to tell. I mean, what do they make of it?
0: That's really well put. I mean, that's a nice description of the process in a way. They, they under, what I proposed to them was very simple. Once I discovered that the men were boastful and found that they would take me to the places, they would almost universally invite me to the places where they killed within minutes often of meeting them, offered to show, start showing me how they killed spontaneously, uh, Sometimes they would even bring along props, weapons to use as props or friends to play as victims, and sometimes they wouldn't, but then they'd complain afterwards that they should have thought to do that. Once I saw that they not only were open, but they were boastful and eager to show what they had done, I started to propose to them, look, you've participated in one of the biggest killings in human history. Of course, I could be that open with them because, like I say, they were that open to me. I want to know what it means to you and to your society. You want to show me what you've done. So go ahead and show me what you've done in whatever way you wish. I will film your reenactments, but I will also film you and your fellow Death Squad veterans discussing what you want to show, what you don't want to show, and your reasons for it. Your reasons for wanting to leave some things out. Your reasons for wanting to highlight other things and thereby show how you want to be seen, how you see yourselves, what this means to you, what this means to your society, and above all really, what this boasting, does? What are the effects of this boasting on your society? And what is the motive behind it? And in that sense, hopefully expose a whole regime of this, I could not quite say this openly, but in that sense, expose a whole regime of fear and corruption and impunity um, on behalf really of the survivors and the human rights community which I, with with whom I began this journey. And we can talk about that in a moment. But that's what I told them. And in that sense, the. The participants all understand from the outset that they're making these scenes only for the act of killing. There's no film within the film. Um, they're, they're not making a separate fiction film that had, to, in, in any sense. And it, also in that sense, the method was not a kind of trick or a lure to get them to open up. It was a response to their openness and a way of trying to understand the consequences and the the, the source of that openness.
1: These men struck me as in their own way, pretty savvy, pretty worldly. Some of them uh, are enmeshed in politics, um, sometimes in a, in a quite impressive way. I mean, uh, you know, these are men who have been involved in these killings, uh, people who are uh, closely associated with those who are directly involved in these killings, um, you know, who know very senior figures in government um, and, you know, command a great deal of respect. So
0: some of them are very senior figures in
1: government. or themselves very senior figures in government. So what I wonder is, they surely understand that if they're encountering a kind of, you know, Westerner from the outside, this is likely to be someone who's going to look askance at what they had done. And, and so I'm curious about that. How did how did they trust you enough to uh, kind of be as open in their boasting as as they were early on?
0: I think I think there's a a few different answer part ways of answering that question, all of which uh, all of which are true. One is that I don't think, First, you say they would maybe assume that that a Westerner, an outsider, would come and look askance at what they'd done. But for them to even assume that, they would have to know and acknowledge to themselves at some deep level that what they had done was wrong, right? Because if you think someone's going to think it's wrong, then you must know it's wrong. And these are perpetrators who've never been forced to admit what they've done was wrong. It's a very telling moment in the film where Arizul Qadri, one of the two main death squad leaders in the film, says, killing is the worst thing you can do, but if you can get away with it, if you're paid well enough for it, go ahead and do it, but then you must make up an excuse justifying your actions, and you must cling to that excuse for the rest of your life. So in that sense, um, he's saying you must lie to yourself, you must... to to justify your actions. And you must avoid admitting it was wrong. So if you you recognize that these men have never been forced to admit what they've done was wrong, it's unlikely that they would assume that outsiders would think what they did was wrong because they haven't even admitted it to themselves. Because to do so would be to be forced to somehow acknowledge that, that they're mass murderers every morning when they look in the mirror. So first of all, I don't think they necessarily thought that an outsider would see what they've done is wrong. All the more so because you mentioned a Westerner might look askance, but In fact, these
1: people knew. And in a way you can compartmentalize that. You can say that, well, these Westerners don't fully understand what had happened, and that can be separate from my narrative. Well,
0: on the contrary. Mm -hmm. These men, every every perpetrator I filmed, Mm -hmm. had the vivid sense and accurate sense that the West supported actively what they did Mm -hmm. and continues to support what what, what they are doing as in their capacity as corrupt, thuggish rulers of contemporary Indonesia. When, when they were killing people, not only was the U.S. providing money, uh, radios so that the army could coordinate the killings across this vast archipelago, which, which is Indonesia, um, they were, and, and training, they were also providing lists of thousands of names of public figures, writers, trade unionists, uh, intellectuals, professors, filmmakers, whom the U.S. was saying, go, we want these people killed. And the message there, I think that, I've I've interviewed some of the men who were involved with compiling those lists. They felt as though they were providing crucial intelligence about who the the so-called communists were. But what they were really doing, I think, was sending an unmistakable signal, kill everybody. Go after everybody who's opposed to the new regime. That's what the US government was doing at the time. And then, what was the US media doing at the time? Time Magazine and, Uh, The New York Times were publishing headlines like the West's best news for years and a gleam of light in Asia over stories of rivers choked with bodies running red with blood, hundreds of thousands of people being killed. So there was a there was these men actually accurately understood that the West, by and large, at least as a political, at least the, the, the governments of the West were supporting what they did. And so they not only and. So yet again, they had no real reason to believe that I would, I would see what they had done as critical. Which is to as,
1: say they didn't necessarily believe that there was kind of uh, internal dissensus or fragmentation within the West regarding uh, this history uh, and how to think about it. They just kind of you know, didn't find it surprising at all that a kind of filmmaker, uh, an artist kind of from the outside world would come in and sort of you know, be kind of quite happy with, uh, with kind of what they were doing.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably true, but I think it, I think more to the point is then the er- the earlier point I made, which is that they haven't
1: dared admit to themselves right, what right, they've right. done
0: is wrong, because to do so would mean they have to wake up every morning, look in the mirror, and see a mass murderer.
1: It also seems as though. They have a kind of subtle sense, for example, you know, one of your uh, characters, person I should say, uh, that you feature in the film uh, is a newspaper publisher who is actively involved in the gathering information. But what's so striking is that he was so blunt, direct, and frank about saying that they were really making up stories. And you wonder about the interaction between, you know, for example, a foreign government and its role in something like this, uh, and also just local reprisals. So, you know, under the rubric of, we are going to attack uh, people who are politically seditious or otherwise, uh, we are going to target uh, members of ethnic minorities, the Chinese minority, uh, you know, kind of perhaps for their uh, relative privilege or whatever else. We are going to target personal enemies, potentially. So it seems though many things fall under this rubric, um, and so, you know, it seems kind of complicated. I mean, you know, perhaps, you know, there were kind of larger political currents going on. Um, you know, And that was part of it, but then also there's this way in you're empowering people to kind of um, live out their own fantasies of revenge or whatever else.
0: I think that's really, really a point well taken. Every perpetrator I filmed, I filmed 40 perpetrators before I met Anwar. And then I continued working my way up the chain of command while I was filming with Anwar. So I filmed retired army generals, and I mentioned I filmed a couple of retired CIA officers and State Department officers. Everybody I filmed, I feel, was killing for power, for money, for the chance to eliminate their competitors politically or economically, for um, to consolidate their careers, to look obedient to their superiors. And I think that the broader political currents that, that we to use to understand, father. the mm-hmm. broader political currents that we use to understand uh, this in, in hindsight namely that this this is in the context of the Cold War when when there was a general uh, battle against communism. The broader political current that we use in hindsight to make sense of these atrocities is very often the excuse that the perpetrators themselves have clung to afterwards to justify their actions. Because I think if you start from the lowest ranking perpetrator in Indonesia and go all the way up the chain of command to General Suharto, none of them were killing for ideological reasons. None of them were killing because they were they had a, a, they they had a, a profound belief that communism was wrong. They were all killing, from, for power, for money, and for the chance to to eliminate their competitors. That was certainly true of Anwar and his friends who talk about actually one of the main motivations for killing was that the left was boycotting Hollywood movies which was a source of income for them as gangsters uh, who ran a black market in cinema tickets. And it's certainly true for General Suharto who was not particularly an anti-communist general before 1965 and used this to take power and to then uh, steal billions of dollars from the state from the state coffers. It was
1: arguably his predecessors' coalition was a very broad front coalition that turned in on itself in some respects. So it does seem as though there are kind of very blurred lines politically in terms of what had happened.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and anybody, and, and people were going after, under the, under the rubric that you go after any potential opponent to the new regime. Well, if you're somehow a mid-ranking foot soldier of the new regime, then all of your former enemies are potential opponents because they don't like you. So you go after them, and it's a chance to go after them. And I suppose that's, that's, that's true of almost any, any mass political killing because it ne- it's always a machine. It's never just one person who has one ideological vision and who then can identify with some kind of purity. Everybody who's opposed to it. It's people down, there's always a long chain of command and everybody has their competitors and their opponents. And when you try and wipe out anybody who might be critical or who might be opposed, you're going after all these local enemies who And and those conflicts will be over land, over Mm. uh, over status, over career, over promotion, over family, interpersonal resentments, and all of it will be will be uh, then glossed in. afterwards as being an ideological battle, because that's the excuse that justifies it. In the, it, the,
1: That's the excuse that justifies it. Some years ago, I read uh, this book that advanced a very controversial thesis, but it, it resonated with me, um, called The Remnants of War. And the premise of the book is that uh, we often use as an analogy um, the kind of Nazi genocide and ethnic cleansing to understand various other conflicts that have happened um, subsequent uh, to that genocide. Yet when you look at many conflicts that have followed it, they follow a not that same kind of industrial scale pattern, but a pattern of kind of brigandage and opportunistic violence. Uh, and it seems that the Indonesian case is a paradigmatic example of this. Uh, you know, there was an ethnic current to it. There was absolutely a political current to it that was de- designed to legitimate uh, the larger project, but that it was really local and personal. And one assumes that, you know, that must be part of why it's so haunting for so many people, because including the perpetrators of the violence, because these are oftentimes people that they knew quite well
0: yeah, yeah, I, I feel somewhat out of my depth because I'm not an expert in in comparative studies of genocide. I, I should be, but I spent really a decade dealing with this genocide in particular. Um, but definitely, when you know that you've killed your 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 neighbor and you know that you've killed and and you know firsthand that the stories that you're telling to justify the killings are lies there's a telling moment in the in the longer directors cut of the film where uh, where they watch uh, they, they discuss a four-hour propaganda film that was produced to justify the killings. And Adi. And children are required to go see this film. Required to view it, that's right. And it's extremely, it's graphically violent. It's in the in way that some people, I think, mistakenly think the, the act of killing may be graphically violent. The act of killing is not graphically violent, but this film really was. And people would, wa- and little children would be forced to watch it four years old, five years old, every year from kindergarten through university, you had to watch it every year and write a report on it. And if you were too young to write, you had to discuss it in class. And the, and Adi says, of course, Anwar, we know this is a lie. And Anwar says, yes, maybe it's a lie, but it's the one thing that makes me feel better about what I've done. And that is somehow the this, I think that embodies the psychological structure of being haunted right there in that statement. I know it's not true, but I need to believe that it's true. And... And that sort of cognitive dissonance underpins daily life for Anwar, there's the killings afterwards because they, were, they, they said that everyone they killed was communist and because communists are sort of uh, by definition in, in the propaganda atheists, um, the, the, the killings have been justified afterwards that they were killing atheists and infidels who would have killed everybody who had religion. This, but, but of course because they knew who they were killing they knew it wasn't the case and because being in the case of the characters in the act of killing being gangsters being playboys running uh prostitution rings and uh and and uh drug markets these were not very religious men to start with
1: so there's a telling they were scene. hardly paragons of islamic virtue not at all
0: and there's a, and there's a scene in, there's a telling scene also in the longer cut of the film where you see anwar on his porch with hermon and there's a call to prayer going and anwar says it's lucky that man didn't fall into my hands because." he's the man doing the call to prayer. It's lucky he didn't fall into my hands because he's a communist, I would have killed him. And what, if, if he knows that, and what he's telling himself every day, day in and day out, so that he can get through life and live with himself, is that the people who he killed were atheists, he's of course haunted by, he must be haunted by what he knows to be true, but which he can't admit to himself each and every day.
1: Yeah, in a way, forcing small children to see a graphically violent film that depicts, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the horrors of, of, of the victims of this incident. It's interesting because it's as though you are manufacturing a trauma for young people and you're actually recapitulating this, you know, kind of uh, with cohort after cohort uh, when there's this real trauma and this manufactured trauma is somehow designed to kind of heal or obscure. I mean, it's interesting obscure. the ways that these relate to each it's, other. It's,
0: it's, it's designed like a fetish to displace attention from the real wound. Right, it, it it is, this manufactured trauma is designed to displace all awareness of the real, of the real events that it justified. But because it is of course this manufactured trauma of what the, the, the graphic violence depicted in the propaganda shows what the communists would have done essentially if they hadn't been killed and, the, and what they have been uh, slanderously alleged to have done that justified the killings and so, this, you, you have this fantasy of graphic, horrific violence, which justifies a violence that no one can talk about and which has displaced in the imagination of ordinary Indonesians the violence that no one can talk about. And I, I think there's just two interesting points to be made about it. One is that in reality, when you talk to people about what happened in 1960, when you talk about the genocide in 1965, unless you really... Have a long conversation and and start to be precise with your language. People will refer to the, the the fault, the fantasy of violence, which never occurred, which justified the kill, the genocide, and the genocide interchangeably, almost unaware. Like in the language, it's like a synecdo- synecdoche or metonym. They just are they're just interchangeably used, and that's one point. And secondly. There's a very crucial moment in the act of killing where Adi says if we succeed in making this film, it will show everybody in Indonesia what they are, that what they already suspect to be true is true, namely that the propaganda, this phantasmatic violent original trauma is a lie and that the real trauma has been lurking in the wings, haunting, obscene, literally outside the scene, but haunting nonetheless always haunting. And there's finally I just say that one of the things that's interesting about this manufactured trauma is that it is of course in the one of the reasons that it is so fragile is that it is in the image of what the perpetrators did. So the perpetrators projected or fant or or imagined an enemy in their own image. So they kill all these people and they say these people deserve to be killed because they are like this. And the, the like this is what is an image of the perpetrators themselves. And that I think, of course, make inevitably is haunting for the perpetrators and makes the fantasy fragile.
1: Indonesia is one of the most populous countries in the world, 250 oh, and, million people. And, and it not only oh, makes please, please, the fantasy
0: please. fragile, it also makes it function as a kind of ongoing threat because everyone knows it. That's what Adi says there, right? He says, everybody knows it's a lie. And what they know, they know in fact that, the, that the, sl- the slander justifying the genocide is in fact an encoded threat showing what the perpetrators are capable of doing mm. if challenged.
1: Indonesia is, uh, you know, obviously a, a very populous, diverse, very important country, yet it's really not on the map of most Americans or Europeans, um, is my sense. And I wonder, how did it first come on your radar?
0: Well, interestingly, it's it's worth saying that again, or underscoring that, because it really is the biggest country that's not on the map. It's the fourth biggest country in the world, population-wise, after the US, China, and India. And it's the largest predominantly Muslim country, and it is extraordinary, the degree to which it's not on the map. Um, There's no other country that even approaches its size that's not on the map in that way. And it wasn't on my map either. I, in 2001, 2002, was asked with my uh, friend Christine Sin to go and make a film in collaboration with a community of plantation workers somewhere in the world who were struggling to organize a union in the aftermath of a genesis, uh, in the aftermath of an authoritarian regime where, where uh, unions were illegal. And we could have been sent anywhere. Colombia was an option, I think, uh, regions in India that had been under sort of uh, martial law, border regions were an option. We were sent. To Indonesia, and we were on a Belgian owned oil palm plantation about 60 miles from Medan, where we made the act of killing in North Sumatra. And this Belgian company is called Societe Financière, which is somehow very telling financial society. You could not, it's almost like um, you couldn't imagine a more kind of Orwellian Mm and sort of impersonal name. Anyways, financial society made the women—it's women, it, women workers—spray a weed killer with no protective clothing, um, and it, it, it was getting into their bloodstreams and dissolving their liver tissues and killing them in their forties. And these women and their and their families desperately needed a, a union so that they could effectively protest against these conditions, and they were afraid to organize one. It turned out partly because financial society hired members of Panchasila Youth to intimidate them whenever they would have protests, to threaten them, and sometimes even physically attack their their protests. And also because their parents and grandparents had been in a strong plantation workers'
1: union. Panchasila unit. Youth being the paramilitary organization that in, is a lineal descendant uh, of the gangsters, et cetera, who had committed the atrocities
0: and in the 65, And 67. the lead characters in the act of killing are all founding fathers of this movement, mm. and today it has three million members okay. across Indonesia. Well. They So this Belgian company, Société Financière Financial Society, would hire them to attack the, the plantation workers when they would protest. But also um, the, the parents and grandparents of the workers with whom we made this film we went to make a film helping them to document and dramatize their struggle to organize a union in the aftermath of the Suharto dictatorship. And it turned out their parents and grandparents had been in a strong plantation workers union, an effective one that had emerged in the aftermath and indeed been part of the struggle against Dutch colonialism. Indonesia had been a Dutch colony until until 1945. They'd been in a strong plantation workers' union and had been accused of being communist sympathizers simply for being in the union and had been killed. And they were afraid that this could happen to them again. And so after we made that film, in this this remote plantation village with really feudal conditions, after we made that film, the plantation workers with whom by then we were very close said, come back and let's make another film together about why we are afraid. Which is to say, not a film about what happened in 1965 per se, but a film about what it's like to live as a survivor with perpetrators all around you, still in positions of power, and therefore, what it's like to live with the fear that they could do this to you again at any time. And if in the you course step of living, out of line.
1: and in the course of uh, working on this first project, uh, you know, I you came to learn the language and you kind of came to kind of understand and, and embed yourself in the local culture. I take it.
0: Yeah. Um, I started, when I first got there, I knew nothing about Indonesia. I knew nothing about the 19th, this was my first encounter with the genocide as well. And I was working through interpreters at first because I didn't speak Indonesian, but it was, I don't know how to make a film with somebody unless I'm close to them. And interpreters really got in the way. And Indonesia is not the, I'd love to say it's, a, it sounds exotic, but I'd love to say, it's a, and therefore that it's a really hard language to learn, but it's mm-hmm. not the hardest language to learn. So I, I, I brought the translators well there are many into local
1: languages roles. and then there's a kind of lingua franca that is spoken kind of uh, across much of the archipelago is that uh, is that that's true right? yeah that's true mm-hmm.
0: and the plantation villages um were largely javanese so people mm-hmm. would also speak javanese but yeah indonesian is the, is a is a version of malay it's a dialect of mm-hmm. malay which is spoken across the archipelago and and one of the things that that the country's been successful at it, is it actually It absorbs unifying. words from
1: other languages as well. It seems to be a kind of language that actually just kind of is very kind of open as well.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe so, maybe so. I I felt I couldn't really work effectively through translators, and so I learned the language as quickly as I could. Um, and after we, when we came, after we finished that film, they said, come back and let's make another film together about why we are afraid. And we came back immediately to start that work in early 2003, and Yet the army, which is stationed in every village in Indonesia, it's something called Territorial Command, and was set up actually with the help of the U.S. government and the RAND Corporation, which was a kind of defense think tank um, of the U.S. government, defense and intelligence think tank. Um, The RAND Corporation had helped the Indonesian government to, Indonesian army to deploy like an octopus with tentacles reaching down to every village, even every neighborhood. Now, that's not, if you think about it, how the US Army is deployed. We don't have command posts in every neighborhood, but it tells you that the Army's function is not to defend against external threats, but to suppress the population. And it still is that way today. And in 2003, early 2003 when we returned, we found that the Army, the local Army, had found out that w- what we were doing and wouldn't let the survivors participate in the film anymore. And the survivors with whom we were really close and had been living for a year to make the previous film said, okay, before you give up, before you go home, try and film the aging perpetrators, the aging death squad leaders in this village and see if they will talk about how our relatives were killed. And I approached them cautiously, unsure if it was safe to speak to them at all, starting with my next door neighbor, who happened to be a death squad leader on the next plantation, and found to my horror that every single one of them death squad leaders in this village were immediately open boastfully recounting the the grisly details of the killings often with smiles on their faces often in front of their wives and their children and even their small grandchildren and enormous questions started to open up why i could understand maybe they boast in front of the the survivors themselves to keep people afraid but why would they talk this way in front of their grandchildren surely they don't want their grandchildren to fear them And I I had this, in fact, this kind of queasy feeling that I'd wandered into Germany 40 years after the Holocaust only to find the Nazis still in power, with the critical exception that I was aware that this particular atrocity had been celebrated in the West when it was happening, which was not the case of the Holocaust. Um, I knew I would spend as long as it would take to address this situation. The first thing I did was take that material back to those survivors, this footage of these village death squad leaders, back to those survivors who wanted to see it. And then, astonished, we all took a plane together to Jakarta to show it to some of the best people in the Indonesian human rights community. And everybody said, you're onto something so important, keep filming the perpetrators, because you're finding out what happened. But more to the point, any Indonesian who sees this will be forced finally to acknowledge what this regime's all about. The rotten heart, the moral vacuum of, uh, that, that becomes inevitable when, when perpetrators, when killers build a political system and preside over it indefinitely and impose their victor's history, justifying what they've done, celebrating
1: atrocity on the whole country. You were filming during a very important moment in Indonesian history after the fall of Suharto. And also, you know, on the island of Sumatra, you had a separatist, uh, some would say Islamist insurgency, relatively close to northern Sumatra and Aceh. Uh, You know, you have a deep anxiety about the territorial integrity of the Indonesian state. Um, You have kind of all of these different issues at work. And then, you know, as the society was transitioning imperfectly to democracy, one wonders, the survivors their descendants, their stories, their counter narratives—the things that existed in tension with, uh, you know, these propaganda films and everything else that had been released—how had these stories survived, and how are these stories reasserting themselves now?
0: Well, the the survivors have formed sort of fledgling movements to come together and talk about about and to share their stories and to, but but it's precarious. Recently, a group of survivors you know about four months ago a group of survivors got together in central java to talk about um the economic problems they face because for decades they were made to carry special id cards not allowed access to decent jobs not allowed access to education requiring special permission even to get married and often denied the right to marry whom they wished um, they came together to talk about the fact that the, the, how they could collectively form in fact a fertilizer cooperative make fertilizer to overcome the 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 real severe poverty there, you know. that they live under because of the decades of discrimination, and the and they were attacked. There is a, pair, a pair, kind of a group not unlike Pancasila Youth that it calls itself the Indonesian Anti-Communist Front, warned the police we're going to attack these people. The police didn't intervene to protect them. They physically attacked the meeting, beat up some old survivors who. You know, in, their, in their 80s, knocked one of them into a, into a uh, unco- be, one of them became unconscious. Um, so it's a precarious and difficult space. I, you, you mentioned Indonesia's transition to democracy. I would say Indonesia went through the motions of transitioning to, demo- or appearing, so that it could appear to transition to democracy. Surely there's been change since the Suharto years. I don't think I could have made the act of killing under Suharto. I think that somebody would have stopped us. Um, more savvy military or political intelligence would have stopped us. But nevertheless, um, the, the I don't think Indonesia is a democracy. Good example, you mentioned the Islamic insurgency in Aceh. It wasn't really an Islamic insurgency at all. It, it was, was an insurgency. It was characterized and defined as
1: such? A, yeah, it was an
0: insurgency struggling for greater control over resources. Exxon Mobil, had a, Mobil oil had a, had a gas field in Luxembourg, in a city in Aceh, and this gas field was responsible for one-third of Mobil oil's profits, so it was very important. The, none of the oil revenue or gas revenue was going back to the province. None of it was being, at least it wasn't reaching the population. And so the, the insurgency was for greater control over the resources. The, the natural resources of the province. And and there was an element of uh, separatism because Aceh was not originally, it wasn't initially part of the original boundaries. Of it has always Indonesia. been
1: culturally distinctive as well.
0: Most provinces mm-hmm. are culturally yeah, distinctive
1: course. in Indonesia. But
0: what happened was, in any case, they, in order to justify a crackdown, particularly after 2001, after September 11, the Indonesian government characterized it as an Islamic insurgency. So you're
1: suggesting that it's in a sense a recapitulation. You have this larger geopolitical current that can be used to legitimate uh, a kind of seizure of power or just the suppression of uh, some movement for uh, redress.
0: Absolutely, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And after the tsunami, a peace deal was brokered because so many people were killed in Aceh that it overwhelmed what the original conflict was about and it was sort of time to move on somehow. But this is a place where ExxonMobil was lending the Indonesian military their bulldozers to dig mass graves for people who were protesting mobile oils activities. So, and, and there's there's ongoing, there's been Alien Tort Claims Act cases in the United States about exactly that, against ExxonMobil for exactly that, and they're ongoing, I think. Um, in any case, this really understandable conflict over resources and, and regional aut- autonomy was cast as, a, as an, Islamic religious conflict to justify suppression in the aftermath of, of 9/11, and as as the as the U.S. started supporting the so-called global war on terror.
1: So, Ponticella Youth is uh, you describe it as an organization of three million people. Um, its size has varied over time. At, at certain times, some have claimed that it has as many as 10 million people. You know, who knows? You know, kind of uh, you know how seriously we ought to take these estimates. But you know, even if we take the smaller number, uh, this is a pretty large share of. You know, even in a country of 250 million people, that's, that's quite large group of people. And you know, in watching your film, you know, of course you have uh, these kind of older, grizzled veterans uh, of the conflict, but you have plenty of much younger people who are kind of, a, who are around them, who are bolstering them, who kind of feel that this is a part of their story as well. And I wonder about that. I mean, sort of, uh, and, 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 I, uh, and I assume that these are people that you interacted with as as well. Uh, what is? their view, and how does it relate to the fact that many of these people that you talk to, they seem to have a more complex and nuanced view of what had happened, if it's not what they publicly express. Uh, but what about the younger people?
0: Um, the younger thugs, I think, their, their capital as younger thugs, as thugs, as gangsters, is fear, is the fact that they're feared. If people stop fearing them, they have no source of income anymore. You can only go through the marketplace and extort people if the market sellers are afraid of them, right? And so I think somehow there's, there's a various moments in the film. There's, a, there's a really a significant moment in the film where a, a, a minister, a deputy, the deputy minister of youth and sport who's actually a position with pretty high responsibility because he's the minister who coordinates political gangsters. Youth in that dossier, youth and sport, yeah. is a euphemism for gangster and sport is thrown in for extra window dressing. And he's the man whose job is to mobilize political gangsters for the state and for companies who pay the, pay for, for the service. And he's basically a, and he's in the job, he has the job because he's been a feared leader of Panchasila youth. So he flies, up, the government flies him up in fact, the ministry flies him up to North Sumatra to act in to direct and act in a pogrom, a reenactment of a pogrom on a village, and he starts in the middle of the scene, in the middle of directing it, acting it, acting in it, firing people up. He calls cut, and he has set, realizes that this is unbecoming. The, what the images that are being produced are unbecoming to a minister in the government. And he says, "Wait a moment. This this is going to make us look bad, and this is bad for my image as a politician." And then he pauses. And he has second thoughts, and he says, and he I think realizes that at least in his short short to me, in the short medium to, his short to medium term image interest is in fact to look bad because he only has his job because he's a feared gangster. Yeah. If he were, you know, an expert in youth services and and and, and sport, there would be many better qualified people to be in the job. And so he yeah. calls cut and tells everybody no actually let's continue with the shooting because this because this shows how terrifying suits my this shows how terrifying we can be well he's caught between a rock and a hard yeah. place and i think he's someone who has an interest in also looking good because he's a public figure but most of the younger members of Panchasila youth are not public figures and their overwhelming interest is in being feared and so they because they profit from being because feared because they profit from being mm-hmm. feared of course because they're gangsters now, the
1: the meaning of the term gangster, I was struck, um, you know, the, the term that's used in, in the film uh, among Indonesians, it's subtly different from the term that we use. You, you refer to thugs and gangsters. I was struck by uh, these spokespeople saying that uh, what a gangster is, is a free man. Uh, and, you know, what that might mean in our context seems to be quite different. To be a free man, um, you know, in this cultural environment seems to mean to be able to act with impunity. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, and it has a particular
0: history which is maybe worth going into since we're talking about about kind of the social and political history here somewhat. The the, the word that they're using is preman, which comes from the Dutch freeman. And it's because under the Dutch, throughout Dutch, the Dutch colonial period, the, the Dutch would use kind of a strata of social outcasts, people who were free of the normal social ties. As brokers bombs. or
1: intermediaries. As, well,
0: particularly as thugs, mm-hmm. to do their dirty work, um, the, and and they, so there was a whole so that the, the Dutch regime could appear to be legitimate while doing while committing all sorts of illegitimate violence surreptitiously through these the, the use of thugs, and so the, and that system presumably was that that was this there was a movement to kind of control the thugs to control the preman after Dutch after independence from the Dutch. And that system underwent a real renaissance when Suharto took power and through the genocide itself, when the thugs were unleashed once again by the army to carry carry out the army's dirty work.
1: Now, there's a moment, uh, and you referred to it earlier on today, uh, when Adi is reflecting on the meaning of the enormity of these crimes, and you know, when you commit a crime, you build a fiction around it, and then you must stick to that fiction. He struck me, as I'm sure he struck many viewers of the film, as an unusually insightful, <laughs> kind of thoughtful person uh, about what he was involved in. He was someone who often insisted on, uh, you know, the fact that there was so much fiction around the kind of defense of kind of uh, you know people like himself, the people who love these paramilitary squads. And But he also said, "Well, look, do we go back to Cain and Abel? Do we go back to the fact that the Americans killed the uh, American Indians?" It, it struck me as really interesting, because it struck me as actually eerily sound, as a characterization for how history is made, how legitimacy is created. Tell me a bit about him and, and, and his perspective and how, how widespread.
0: Well, his I, I was. agree with you. I think I think that, that, that it's eerily sound. I think what's chilling about the scene where about there's one scene where he says history, that war crimes are defined by the winners and I'm a winner. So don't tell me I'm a war criminal. I get to define what a war crime is here. Um, and, and I think it's it's a frightening moment because we recognize that of course it's true. And when viewers coming out of the film say, what can, you know, can, what can the West do about this? One of the first things I remind them if I'm doing, if I'm speaking to, if, I, if I'm talking after the film is to say we have to remember that the genocide the military dictatorship which followed, the rule of present-day impunity for gangsters and thugs, and the use of them by corporations and by the government. This is the West's vision for Indonesia, and for many places like Indonesia, and in that sense, and so when you so not only so we shouldn't we shouldn't cross our fingers and hope that the Security Council and the UN will set up will set up an international tribunal, a special tribunal to address these crimes, because. They never set up international tribunals to, to address crimes uh, that have been in part perpetrated by security Council members never the, the Special Tribunal for Yugoslavia, the Special Tribunal for uh, Cambodia, the Special Tribunal for Rwanda these are these have, these have gone through because the Security Council members didn't have interests were not, were not per- perpetrators of those crimes. but here we have a crime which was perpetrated at least by two permanent members of the Security Council, the United States and England, the United Kingdom. And so of course, nothing will be done. And so there's a sense that Adi is speaking about, not, not just in general terms about how Victor's histories are written and imposed, but he's also speaking to his own case that, and in fact, at some point he says, look, I say to him, what if you were brought to The Hague? And he says, come on afterwards, you know I'll never be taken to The Hague because you know The Hague has no interest In uh, pursuing this case. Adi I think is a character when he came into the film midway through the process and it was amazing. Suddenly this man walks off a plane with a t-shirt that says apathetic. I'd never met him before. My production manager in Jakarta had met him and is standing behind me tapping me on the shoulder as he comes down the steps leading off the plane so that I know who to follow with the camera because I just am Ready to? I have a camera set ready to follow the man as he descends. I get this, ta- this m- sort of late middle-aged guy in a T-shirt that says apathetic. He looks worldly. He looks like my neighbor in suburban Maryland where I grew up. I get this tap on the shoulder, and I follow him down. And the, he starts talking almost immediately about how what they did was wrong, how the government should apologize, how... Uh, that all the propaganda justifying the killings is a lie, how they were going off after members of a perfectly legal political party. And it was astonishing to me. I'd spent years filming with perpetrators. No one had ever dared to articulate these things. I think because it would in part be too psychologically threatening for the individual perpetrators to contemplate those kind of thoughts. In any case, this man starts spewing almost all of these things. And I became hopeful, I said, let, I wanted to know what would happen when he starts saying these things to Anwar. I was prepared for the film to go in a totally different direction. They go fishing together. Anwar says, Anwar is a guy he's known since childhood, before they were killing together, they we were best friends in their teenage years. Anwar starts telling him about his nightmares. I think Adi maybe found that threatening because Adi somehow keeps everything at a very cold intellectual distance. Anyhow, I Suggested
1: that he see a therapist says, who is trying to genuinely be helpful.
0: Therapist, he says, see a psychiatrist mm. and you can get nerve vitamins. Right, right. And I see, and then he mixes, <laughs> he slips between psychiatrist and neurologist saying, I mm. see a ner- nerve doctor, neurologist. And it's it,
1: nerve doctors <laughs> that work. That occurred to me as a way to gently ease him into this, but, but that's interesting. Maybe, yeah.
0: maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it is. Maybe it is. But he also says, your nightmares are just a nerve disturbance, mm. which is to not talk about what the, That they actually, which is to deny that they have any moral significance. He says, see, your nightmares are just a nerve disturbance. Like me, I had a small stroke. It's also a nerve disturbance. Go see a psychiatrist, he'll give you nerve vitamins. Um, Anyways, Adi continues to say all of these progressive things, speaking almost as a progressive Indonesian would until he sees at some crucial point that the film has the power to, as we talked about earlier, to turn the official history on its head and show all Indonesians what they already know to be true, namely that the fantasy justifying the genocide is a lie. The, or the, the manufactured trauma, as you put it really well earlier, justifying the genocide is a lie. And he, at that point, stops and says, wait a minute, we should not be making this film basically. And he warns everybody not to make the film. And I heard, in fact, then he tells it, warns everybody, that I heard through my radio microphone, through, through his radio microphone, that Josh may be a communist. And that was a moment of danger, particularly for my Indonesian crew, which was with me. So I had to go up and address him and say, wait a moment. If you have a question for me, here I am, ask. In any case...
1: That must have been absolutely terrifying.
0: You know... I remember it as just something like where I knew exactly what I had to do next. Um, I I think I felt absolutely terrified when the deputy minister of youth and sport as we talked about earlier said called cut and said we have to um we, we 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 shouldn't be showing this because I thought that he saw that the whole film is politically dangerous to the whole regime and he's in the government and he had a contingent of the army guarding him at the, end, at the end of this lane leading to the set. And all he had to do was call them and say, okay, the army, tell the army to go to arrest us or detain us all. And instantly also the army of extras, paramilitary members who were extras in the reenactment of this uh, pogrom would also turn and help detain us and perhaps be violent. So that was, that was a moment where I was actually really afraid. Mm-hmm. But with Adi, I just remember single-mindedly I knew I had to go up to him. So I go up to him. And I, I confronted him and I said, look Adi, if you have a question for me, here I am. And I, I said, in fact, no, I'm, I'm not a communist and that's not why I'm making this film. But, but what was more, what I, what I sort of understand about Adi is that somehow he actually does know that what he did was wrong. And I, I believe him. He later in the film says he doesn't have trouble sleeping at night, he does, he's not haunted by nightmares. I believe him but I think somehow he assuages his conscience, he, he,
1: he With his assuages his guilt
0: mm. by going through the motions, at least, mm. of acting like a progressive moral person. It makes him feel better about himself to think, maybe he feels like he's sort of making amends for what he did by speaking out in, on behalf of truth and reconciliation and justice, at least until he sees that it might actually come, and then he gets cold feet. And the fact is, he was right. The film has led to this change. Adi is,
1: in a sense, a stand-in for many of us watching the film, I imagine. Uh, I think that he, he really speaks to a kind of, a, if not universal condition, certainly a very common one.
0: Yeah, that's right. We all, I think, actually claim, advocate values that, that if we were to live them, would necessitate very real, profound changes
1: in our lives. So Josh, tell me about the impact of this film in Indonesia.
0: Well, our whole strategy for releasing the film in Indonesia has been to avoid the film being banned. Because if we simply wanted it to come out in cinemas, we would have had to submit it to the censors, and the censors may well have banned it. And if it's banned, it becomes a crime to watch the film at all. And if it's a crime to watch the film, it becomes an excuse for Panchasila Youth, the paramilitary movement, or for the army or any other paramilitary movement to physically attack screenings. And Even in your own home if you watch it alone in your own home So to avoid that we knew we had to build up very high-level political cultural media support for the film We held screenings at the National Human Rights Commission in Jakarta uh, In the months after we finished the film for Indonesia's leading filmmakers celebrities historians intellectuals educators artists, but also human rights advocates, but also Indonesia's leading news editors and Um, news publishers, the editor of Tempo Magazine, the largest news magazine in the country, phoned me after seeing the film and said, Josh, there was a time before the act of killing in Indonesia. Now there will be a time after the act of killing. I have been censoring stories about this genocide ever since I've been in this job, and I'm not going to do it anymore because your film shows me above all that I don't want to grow old as a perpetrator. And he sent 60 journalists around the country to find men like Anwar who would talk about what they'd done and to their horror, I suppose, they found everywhere they went. They could, meet just as I had done, they found perpetrators immediately willing to say they were perpetrators and boast about what they'd done. Within two weeks, he gathered nearly a thousand pages of testimony from around the country. They published 75 pages of it in a special double edition of Tempo magazine, plus 25 pages or something about the act of killing showing that the act of killing is a repeatable experiment. It could have been made anywhere in in Indonesia, that there's thousands of men like Anwar out there in Indonesia, that the problems of corruption, fear, gangsterism, these are systemic problems. Um, The magazine came out on the 1st of October, 2012. It sold out immediately. They reprinted it. It sold out again. They reprinted it. It sold out again. Because Indonesians were finally astonished, I think, that this Holocaust that underpins the whole Norma system was su- suddenly being, and that the media never talks about, was suddenly filling an entire double edition of the most important news publication in the country. The rest of the media then started reporting on what happened, a big, a major public debate emerged about what actually happened and what are why Indonesia needs to come to terms with its past. Meanwhile, all these people who'd seen the film started to hold screenings of the film, starting on that, uh, International Human Rights Day 2012, December 10th, starting with 50 screenings in 30 cities. That had grown as of last summer to thousands of screenings in hundreds of cities. We made the film then available on, for free download um, for Indonesians. We made the film available for free download for anyone logging onto activekilling.com from Indonesia. And then it's now become available for free streaming in an Indonesian language for, without subtitles. In Indonesia and it's basically come to the country like the child in the Emperor's new clothes saying something that people had long known was true but been too afraid to say or exactly as Adi said it would come to the country it so it has the film has opened in that sense a space for people to talk about something that until now they haven't been able, able to talk about without fear and when the film was nominated for an Academy Award, the government finally broke its silence on the film with a wholly inadequate statement, except for the fact that they said, yes, this is a crime against humanity, but we will have to deal with it in our own time. Now that was significant because until then the government had maintained that this was heroic. And actually, just a few months earlier, the president had proposed that the architect of the the killings be anointed as a national hero for his role in the killings. Suddenly, the government's acknowledging this is not heroic. This was a crime against humanity. That's not a sign of goodwill, but it is a barometer of how much the public discourse has changed since since the film first appeared in 2012.
1: Josh, thanks very much for joining us.
0: Thank you.